Hello, my name is Mikey Barge and this is the podcast from the Greater London Youth Foundation. And this is the Greater London Youth Foundation presents the Mikey Barge Show. Each week, we will talk to young people who are doing great things in their community or how they overcome failure or health issues and so on. What have they learned from life's lessons that they can pass along to everybody? We will also talk to some adults who are doing great things for young people in their community. Welcome back to another melodic episode of the Mikey Bard Show. In today's episode, we are talking with a very special guest, David Simmons, CBE. He is an acting member of parliament for the Conservative Party. He represents the constituency of Penna, Ricelip and Northwood in London. And we're going to find out the stepping stones you need to become a member of parliament. This is very exciting stuff, but now it's time for our news highlight of the week. Travellers returning from 33 high-risk countries must now spend 10 days in a government-approved hotel. The cost per adult uh, in US dollars, by the way, is about 2,500 US dollars. In pounds, it's about 1,700 pounds or so. Not chump change by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, no. Millions of travellers are facing quarantine because of the coronavirus travel restrictions. Come on, it's not that bad, is it? Stuck in a five-star hotel room for 10 days, TV, internet, room service, king-size bed. Oh, wait, you're paying for it all and you can't leave the room and there's no laundry. Listen to this clip of this poor man stuck in this hotel room. Oh, no. Right, done my exercise, had a shower, caught up with some friends, watched a bit of trash TV, done a bit of reading, uh, had my dinner, uh, and now time for what I call my therapy. I need to kind of wash my pyjamas and t-shirts. I'm not going to lie, I've actually found it quite therapeutic (laughs) to do my laundry in here. No, it's not very middle class, is it, having to wash your panties in the sink, is it? Oh, what would the neighbours think? One minute, you're going on a dream holiday for a lifetime, sunbathing with your missus on the seashore, sipping cocktails, and the next minute you're washing your pants in the sink. It's not exactly James Bond, is it? Ah, Mr. Bond, is that a flotation device I see in your bathroom? No, it's just my pants. I don't think so. I don't think so. But you know what? I'll brighten up the mood because I was quarantining myself and I was looking at some of the old records that I had that my granddad left over. I dust them off and I found some classics in there. And you know what? Some of these old school rock bands were talking about coronavirus. They were talking about this whole situation subliminally. When you play the record backwards, they tell you information. Just listen to the lyrics. You gotta listen. You gotta listen, man. In a dark, dirty hotel For two weeks I can't leave I spoke to the manager He said I, I gotta quarantine Can you keep a social distance In your room you stay But because he had a mask on I couldn't hear him say Welcome to Hotel Coronavirus It's such a lovely place I put a mask in your face You're stuck in your room at the Hotel Coronavirus You're getting charged by the day For your holiday On a holiday 
I do have sympathy for these people because you go to a Four Seasons hotel because you want to stay for a few nights, not actually four seasons. So let's just give a moment to um, give a moment of silence for all these people who are stuck in these five star hotels. Psych! Oh, I'm joking. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Without further ado, let's move over to our special guest. Um, and we are greeted by a very special guest today, David Simmons, CBE MP. Yeah, that's right. So I, I'm a member of Parliament for a bit of northwest London, about as far out of London as you can get, but still be in the capital. Uh, it's a place where I've been a local councillor for 22 years, um, where I live with my, my family out in, in West London. Um, been a long personal journey for me. I grew up in South Wales, went to a comprehensive school in the valleys there, joined the Conservative Party because I was a bit of a teenage rebel and everybody that I knew, all the teachers, all the other people interested in politics were all very, very much Labour. Um, but that kind of open my eyes really to all the things that go on in politics how you can go on to make a difference and uh and all this time later here i am as a member of parliament and here you are and let's talk about your childhood then um you just mentioned where you were you were born and raised but yeah where were you born and um where were you brought up talk to us i was born in kent uh, i moved to uh, to south wales with my parents when i was very very young and uh, yeah i grew up in a town called caffilly which is uh, in the south wales valleys and went to a uh, local school very interesting experience. It wasn't a very political place. None of my family are very interested in politics, but I guess I was interested because I said a lot of history and things like that in what was going on, particularly with the general elections. There was a lot of stuff in the news and, you know, that stimulated my interest. I started to follow it a bit more closely, uh, decided in due course that I thought the Conservative Party was the one where the people were talking more sense. They seemed to have the right ideas about how to make a difference. I think the fact that that was a bit of a rebellion against uh, what a lot of people were telling me at school um, kind of added motivation for me to stick with that and then when I went off to become a student I went to Durham University became a lot more involved in politics there we had a general election in 1997 and uh, I was involved in running that campaign found it an absolutely fantastic experience uh, Durham was a place where the Conservative Party wasn't very popular and the 1st of May 1997 was not a great year for the Conservatives either in electoral terms but it was a really good experience I made some fantastic friends learned a bit more about how things were done and so let's stay with the, the childhood, um, that, that sort of age. What did your parents, what do your parents do? Both my parents worked uh, initially as teachers and then uh, were local government officers. So my mum was the secretary at the primary school that I went to when I was very young. And my dad worked for uh, the local authority, not too far away, both retired now, um, but still live in South Wales. Uh, and that's where uh, my sister and her husband also live today. Um, it was, yeah, it was uh, a, a place to grow up that's, you know, it's changed a lot, um, dominated initially in the early years by mining and heavy industry. So my dad had a, a job in the steelworks when he was younger. My granddad, great granddad, both been miners and engineers. 
So they worked on the railways, another big heavy industry that you see across the South Wales Valleys. And of course, it's changed completely now. And we're seeing a lot more growth of new industries, tech industries, and businesses like call centres, solicitors, all setting up, particularly along the coastal strip. So it's changed the nature of the economy in that place. And it, it's a very different culture. But at the time, it was very much steeped, I think, in the traditional kind of labour working class culture that we, we kind of characterise and associate with the South Wales Valleys. Of course, that was that was in my mind originally. So I guess you are a bit of a rebel for kind of going away from the status quo. But what did your parents want from you then? Because they sound like they've, you know, they come from a certain level. What did they want from you growing up? Well, my, my family have been very, very supportive. They've wanted me to, to go on and achieve my ambitions. And I think that's what every parent who, who really has the best interest of their child at heart wants to do. I do remember my mum saying she'd have been much happier if her son was a dustman than if he was a, a politician. So I think perhaps didn't feel that politics was all that respectable. But I think over time, being able to show that you can make a positive difference to people's lives, it's the kind of thing that brings your family along with you. And what would you be doing then if you weren't an MP? I've been a councillor for a long time and I felt in local government that you can make a very direct difference for your community. So my responsibilities at Hillingdon Council have been for education and children's services. I'm very proud of the fact that we built and opened new youth centres in the borough over that time. We saw a big improvement in education attainment, so young people getting more opportunities, seeing colleges coming in, offering a wider range of courses, apprenticeships being created, and making sure that the children who aren't getting a good start in life because things have gone wrong at home uh, have that put right as best we can, try and make sure that they're able to prosper and thrive. So you can make a really direct difference. But what I'm hoping to do as a member of parliament is to take that experience to Westminster. So I'm a member of the Education Select Committee, which is the committee whose job is to scrutinise what the government is doing around young people's lives and what's happening with our schools and our universities. and try and use the experience I've had more close to the front line, really, to say, how can we make sure that the aspirations that everybody's got for our young people those aspirations get fulfilled what are the things that we need to do differently the things we need to improve to make that happen and like you said you've recently been made um, you know you've, you've recently become an MP what was your first day like if you can remember it, it was a very strange day so anybody who's been involved in elections um, one of the factors that you always get is that the election happens and um, the polls close at 10 o'clock which is when people stop voting and then you have to count how the votes uh, have, have been cast. So you generally find out the result of the election between about two and five in the morning the following day. So you've been up for nigh on 24 hours by the time you find out what the election's like. So by and large, you're in a bit of a daze. In my case, I'm a London MP. I went straight into Westminster, got set up with all the things that you need to do the job. And it's it's things that will be familiar to most people starting any new job. You get your, your computer and things like that so that you can send and receive emails. You can message people. You learn a bit about the place you're going to work the rules that apply there. You do all the things like security to make sure that you can get in and out and, and begin to figure out what it is that you're going to do in order to, to do the job that your constituents have elected you to do. And of course, it was a very strange time to come into politics because we'd had Parliament spending a lot of time arguing about Brexit and that real sense, you know, whatever side of that argument you were on, a real sense that the country wasn't able to move forward one way or the other. So a decision had to be made in order to, to get things moving. And a lot of people were saying, well, at least now there's a government with a clear majority. That means we can make a decision, we can move forward and stop spending all our time arguing about Brexit and focus on all these important domestic things that we want to deal with, like education and the health service. And then COVID came along. So it was a very swift um, change from being in an environment where people were, were really thinking, yeah, we can get on and on focus on the economy and the wider issues and straight into 
having to deal with with COVID, which has pretty much dominated everything in politics since. And there's a lot of theatrics in politics. So for someone new stepping in, I'm not. I mean, you you've had experience as a councillor, of course, but to stepping into that big world stage, what was that like? I mean, did you politics? Of... Yeah, I, I guess Parliament itself as an institution feels quite old fashioned, and it's got its own ways of doing things. And you've got to learn how that works because if you are going to be able to ask the right questions for your constituents to find out how to get things changed, you need to find out how you do that in exactly the same way as you would. You know, starting starting any new job. Uh, the world of Westminster, in many ways, is, is a familiar one because I've worked local government at a national level for quite a long time. I'm very conscious that there are there are ways in which you can bring about influence, and one of those things, of course, is making sure that you're able to explain to people what it is that you're trying to achieve clearly. So I think the the organisations out there, the media organisations, are often really good at encouraging politicians to think about how do I explain what I'm trying to achieve, so that um, the voters and the people who are gonna to have to write the policy and put it into action, understand what it is that we're about. And I've noticed that you've got a CBE attached to your name. What is that and how do I get one? CBE is, uh, stands for Commander of the British Empire, which is a very old fashioned title, but every year um, you've probably seen in the news that there's New Year's and the Queen's birthday, they have honors and they give awards to people. It's like a, a medal on behalf of the country the things that people have done, and there will be people in there who are everything from uh, scientists, medical people, uh, vets, through to people who've done amazing things in their particular local community. In my case, it was for the services that I've done for children and young people and for local government over the years. Brilliant. And so what are the benefits of that? I mean, can you, is it like Blue Peter badge? You can go to a British Museum and see the expo- expositions or is, is it just an honorary thing or does it actually get you? Yeah, some it, it doesn't come with any freebies, but it's it's quite good in the sense that it helps to recognise the difference that we can make, uh, not just in politics, but in all these other things. It's very much about showing if you've done something that's made a difference to other people. And in my case, that was very much about raising the opportunities for young people, trying to make sure that children were kept safe when they were at risk and making sure that the wider world was more engaged with that, understood, for example, how other organisations who might come across a child who was in a difficult situation, how they might help to turn that situation around. And, and that, that I think is really important, but it's also great in the sense, you know, whatever the names of the awards are, that we recognise people who are making that wider contribution. And it includes things like music, media, and pretty much anything that you do that, where you make a difference to other people, you can find yourself getting one of those awards from, from the British government. And so talk to us about some of that work you did with young people. I've got down here, you've done some amazing work with refugees. Um, copies, sorry, it goes over to a wide various different um, sectors, but can you talk to us about some of the work you've done with young people, some of the achievements that you've made and changes you've, you've accomplished? So specifically in respect to refugees, um, the UK has been for a long time, a very big resettler in particular of child refugees. So a lot of young people who come here without their parents, without any adults who are able to look after them and making sure that they've got a place of safety, that where they're going is, is somewhere that's properly resourced. So they've got access to education, healthcare if they need it. If they've been victims, sometimes of torture, all kinds of abuse may have happened, that they have the support there to try and get their lives back on track. That's been a big part of it. And the scheme that we launched in 2015 to help people who have been affected by the war in Syria. A small number of those people have come to the UK, have been resettled by councils in this country, provided with that support was was a big part of it. And on the other side of it, we've seen children who have been at risk, for example, of of sexual exploitation, where people in that wider community around them have been targeting them, trying to do them harm, and looking at how we we can raise the awareness so that schools, so that GPs, that hospitals, mums and dads, 
can spot the warning signs that something may be going a bit wrong in that young person's life and intervene before it does them harm. Amazing. And well, that's not amazing, but it's amazing work you have been doing. Talk to us about what's going on now with young people. A young person to me mentioned digital poverty, and I never really heard that term before. And this was in relation to the exams that they were taking and not having access and resources to the same equipment that other households might have. Is that a concern for young people at the moment? Digital poverty? It's certainly, yeah, it is definitely a concern. It's a big worry for, for government. And we know it's not just something that affects young people, that a lot of things in the world are going digital. And it can be everything from, from banking to medical services to education. So if you don't have access to the right equipment, whether it's a, a laptop, an iPhone, and access also to an internet service provider whereby you can, you can engage with that, then that's going to be a big, big problem. You might find yourself left out of that. Now, the government, I know in respect of young people, uh, has become the biggest buyer of laptops in the Western world. Huge numbers of them being pushed out so that young people who are not at school at the moment because of the COVID situation are able to access online lessons. And the internet service providers have been asked and have lifted the data limits so that young people whose mums and dads may not be able to afford expensive subscriptions, may have limits on what they can do, are at least able to get access to the lessons that are provided online. Because it's really, really important to make sure that people don't miss out. Your wife is a NHS doctor. So speaking of COVID, you're very close to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, how has that impacted your lives in general? Because you're quite, you're on the front line of it. Um, you're seeing the, the, you know, the daily changes. How's that changed your life? Well, COVID has, has impacted everybody's life. And there's no, no question about that from young people who've not been able to sit exams that they would have done. You know, for me personally, I would normally have been spending most of my time in Westminster in Parliament, which is a really great way to get to speak to the people that you need to speak to, to do the work that you do on behalf of constituents. But like an awful lot of people, I've been spending more of my time working from home, talking to people over Zoom, talking to people on Teams. And it's, it's changed the way in which we do business. And that's something, it's a necessity. We need to do what we do to try and keep people safe. But it does mean that the human contact, which is a normal part of life, is something that's absent. And of course, you know, anyone who's connected to people who are working you know, in the NHS, in other frontline services will know that a lot of things change at the last minute. People are, are being called in to do shifts, things, I mean, are going to work in the middle of the night and things like that, all of which has an impact on family life. So I think we're all looking forward to the days when things return to a, a slightly more normal pace. Yeah, same here. Here's another question for you. What would you do if you were the PM, if you were the prime minister for a day? I think the, the thing that struck me um, in the COVID response, and I think it's a lesson for us for the future, is that government in Britain is very centralised and can sometimes be out of touch because of that. So I think we need to find new and different ways of, of doing that. So I think for me, it would be about making sure that power and decision-making over things is much, much closer to people and communities rather than centralised in Westminster. And partly that reflects my experience in local government, that we know local councillors, people who are making decisions locally are much more trusted to make the right decisions in the interests of that community than I would be as a member of parliament sat in Westminster. But it's also about making sure that a wider range of people can participate and have their say. I think the more, more people have control over their lives, are able to influence things that are going on around them, the happier they are. And also it means that the government in Westminster, rather than trying to micromanage things, get involved in detail, is able to concentrate on the big strategic things that affect the future of the country. You're quite well-rounded as an individual. You, it doesn't seem like you just came straight in from um, a particular school and went you know, to career politics. 
you you had a life before and a different profession before. Do you think that career politics? Oh, the people. Actually, let me ask the question again. Do the people that you met on your day to day basis in in Parliament were they a different breed, like different kettle of fish? So Parliament speak. is is incredibly diverse. It, it's full of all sorts of different people, and and sometimes you know those people are what you you traditionally assume conservative or Labour politicians are going to be like. Mm. Very posh, very rich, went to you know very expensive schools. But actually, an awful lot of those people are from just much more normal, regular backgrounds. And you know, I think we've recently had the debate about free school meals, for example. And my colleague, Brendan Clark-Smith, who's the member of Parliament of Bassett Law, you know, he was able to talk about how growing up as a child, living in poverty, being on free school meals himself, had influenced the way in which he saw this debate. And I think we've seen a lot of politicians whose diverse backgrounds and experience enable them to ask better questions. And in turn, that makes government policy better because they understand a bit more from their own experience how these things are in the real world. A lot of people watch, um, get their view of politicians from what they see on TV. I mean, I'm coming from a media perspective and I'm not in there on the inside. So what are the misconceptions of politicians that we see in films and TV where you think, hold on, that's not true. It doesn't actually go like that. Um, well, there's no old saying that politics is showbiz for ugly people. And I think uh, when you see um, a lot of a lot of TV dramas and things like that, um, the politicians are usually much better looking than we all are in, in real life. And the other thing is the pace of politics and the way in which things are done. Um, people don't tend to have, politicians don't tend to have a huge amount of individual power. We do things together. So there's scrutiny of what happens. So everything from, you know, I mentioned committees earlier on, everything from decisions, big decisions that could be things like taking the country to war through to quite small decisions are taken by groups of politicians and it's mostly cross-party. So actually, most of what happens in politics isn't about conflict and argument and winners and losers. It is about cooperation. It's about finding consensus. Of course, that's a lot less exciting. So the things that people tend to like about Parliament uh, are things like Prime Minister's questions where they turn it on and they see everybody shouting and people having digs at each other. But in fact, most of those people spend most of their time working very constructively together. Interesting. And the last thing I saw in a film, and I want you to debunk this, can can politicians be like compromised and blackmailed? And you see all this sort of interplay of, um, how do I say, like maybe like corporate interest, you know, they go, make sure you vote for that. Um, don't vote for that. Don't turn up on this. Does that happen? Is that real? Politicians are human beings. So, I mean, the short answer is yes, it can happen. Um, I've not seen evidence of it happening in, in my time in Westminster. Now, there are always people out there, um, it may be businesses, it may be maybe dodgy individuals of one kind or another, who would like to exert that influence and who may even be telling other people that they've got it. But in practice, because everything's transparent, you know, you just go online, you can see how every MP voted on everything. You can watch every speech that they've made. You can see this a written record of everything that they've ever said. If somebody was doing something that was inappropriate, it would become pretty obvious pretty quickly. So it's, it's unlikely and it's unusual to see much in the way of, of any sort of corruption or inappropriate behaviour in politics. But that's not to say it doesn't happen. Like Britain is, is a pretty good country in that respect. But there are definitely places in the world. And, you know, we're a very diverse country. We've got plenty of people here who've come to the UK seeking refuge from places where corruption is, has been a big factor in their lives. So we know it happens in, in politics globally. All right. We want to talk about the benefits of being an MP for our young people out there. So let's talk about the transparency. How much do MPs get paid? Is it a good salary? Is there good benefits? Can you talk to us yeah. about that? Yeah. So MPs pay is, is just over £80,000 a year. 
and um, then it's pretty much the same as um, in a in a job. Um, so if you've got expenses that you incur to do your job, then you can claim those back, and, and the taxpayer will refund them. In my case, as a London MP, there's not really very much in that respect. But clearly, I've got colleagues who represent constituencies like the Orkney Islands. You know, have to fly to Westminster. It's a long journey, so they'll have much higher costs in terms of, of getting to and fro in order to represent people. So, so that's how that works. Um, the the way in which MPs pay is done. There's an uh, independent body that looks at what people are paid in similar kinds of jobs, and then they provide advice every year and say this is what we think the pay should be. And I think that's better. In the past, um, politics got into a lot of trouble to do with politicians setting their own salaries. I think it's helpful that it's done independently. And in my view, whatever the independent body says, that's what MPs should, should accept. And you're the MP, as I said, for Ryslip, Northwood, Pinner, my hometown, where I was born and raised. So it's really amazing to talk to you. Why should anyone come to this area? What would you say? It's a fantastic place. It's absolutely brilliant. I think, I mean, the suburbs aren't for everybody. We know that. But it's been really evident, particularly during the, the COVID outbreak, that having access to brilliant green spaces, you've got fantastic things from sports facilities, youth clubs, really, really good schools. So for young people, there's lots to do. And, and that's fantastic. I've got very young children. It's great that there are so many really nice parks. There's access to nature and the countryside. You can go for a walk in the woods. You can go for a, a walk around Ricelip Lido. You can go and, and take your children to play on the beach because we've got a beach in Ricelip, Northern and Pinner, which not everywhere has. We've got some fantastic museums and things like that, including some quite interesting, quirky ones. So there's lots of really good stuff to do when you're, when you're growing up, when you're young. And of course, the rest of London's on your doorstep. It's a place that's well connected. So if you want to go up to, to the West End, you want to go out and, and visit all the things that, that London has to offer as a capital city. It's easy to access those things as well. But knowing that you can go home and enjoy a bit of peace and quiet at the end of the day. Now, I don't know if you remember, but there was a fair that was in Pinner called the Pinner Fair, which has been around for 200 years. It has, yes. So now I'm talking to the main man here. Is there any way we can get Pinner Fair to come back? Is it going to come back? It, I'm, I'm sure it will. It, it was certainly, it was on in the run up to the election and it was great. I went, went and enjoyed it myself. And, um, you know, people were out there with their stores doing all sorts of different interesting food and entertainment. COVID means it's been off this year, but but I've spoken to the people who organise it and they're very keen to get it back as soon as possible. So the, the local councillors who look after the Pinner area, they've been very much involved in the planning for that, looking at whether perhaps they could close some roads, do something a bit different to make it happen. And fingers crossed, if all goes well with the vaccine rollout, and so far the news around that seems to be pretty good, then we'll see Pinner Fair back in action. Amazing. Positivity there, positivity there. Let's talk about just another side note then. If you had to be on any reality TV program, it's not my question, but if you had to be on any t reality TV program, what would you be drawn to? Uh, Strictly Come Dancing, Big Brother, Get Me Out of Here, The Voice, Bake Off, um, anything. <laughs> I, I think I'd probably be best off somewhere like the repair shop because I'm, I'm quite happy, uh, you know, tinkering with old stuff, trying to, to sort it out. So that probably would be more of my talents. I think um, Strictly Come Dancing or, or Dancing on Ice, uh, I'm not kind of uh, I'm built for that sort of competition, I don't think. Okay, um, let me say, you have children yourself, um, and this podcast is for young people who are doing great things. So as I said, we interview adults, but what advice would you give to your younger self? I make the most of, of every opportunity that, that comes along. And I, one of the, the challenges that I always think you know, the, the kind of schools that I went to weren't great at teaching young people to be confident. 
And one of the things I really think we need to see, and uh, I really like about many of the schools that serve my constituency, is they're really good at, at giving young people that kind of confidence. And often that's about simple things like giving people opportunities to do work experience, making sure that they experience what it is like to be interviewed by someone for a job or for an opportunity, so that when the time comes and it's something that they really, really want to do, it's not the first time they've ever experienced that kind of challenge. And that I think that's a really, really important thing to do. It's to find the opportunity to test yourself whenever you can. So let's go, we're wrapping up to the end. You've answered these questions brilliantly. Just so the audience are clear and I'm clear, if someone wants to go into politics and, and actually become um, a conservative MP, for example, I mean, what is the steps? I mean, how do you, do you just walk into the, the office and to say, hey, I want to join your club or did they find you or did you send them loads of emails? I mean, what's it like? In my case, I joined my local conservative branch in Caerphilly. Um, they were really, really nice people. And um, I sent them a check because I would read on the party information that you know you needed to pay a fee, which, which you do today. Um, they sent it back and said that's too much you know you're a young person don't don't give us this money um and so you know and that was the really good welcoming introduction and then somebody came around and in the conservative party i think the same is probably true of other political parties there tends to be a, a young people's branch in every local area so the person who was was running that came around to see me he was a young man himself and he, he basically said look you know what are you interested in what do you want to do and, and we went out and we did some political campaigning, starting, sounds really dull, but delivering leaflets in a council by-election. But it gave me an opportunity to see what being a member of a political party was like, and also then allowed me to talk to somebody who'd been in that for a little while about how you could go on if you wanted to, to be elected, what was that going to involve, if you wanted to be involved in organising things, because some people really, really like the voluntary aspect of it. They like organising election campaigns, figuring out how that will work. You can do that. Other people are more interested in finding a job because perhaps they want to work in parliament, they want to work in politics, or they want to do another job, but they want to have an interest. So you can figure out really where that's going to take you. And for some people, and in my case, I kind of fell into local government. I didn't expect to be elected when I was first elected as a councillor. And once I was, I found I absolutely loved it. And a lot of young people, young people on Hillingdon and Harrow councils, in, in all the political parties, a lot of young people who do that actually find it's a lot more fun, a lot more interesting than maybe they thought it was going to be. And certainly the reputation of local government councils and of politics generally isn't that it's a cool and exciting place, but it can be really, really interesting if you want to make a positive difference in other people's lives. And I think so many of our listeners want to get into politics right now. Everyone's talking about it, especially the climate of the world. So a couple of people have emailed me saying, um they're quite scared to go out now because of the way that the, the the country's kind of become a bit militarized there's a lot of protests on there's a lot of police um who are, you know swarms of police out there some say the laws are even draconian they're saying that there's small offenses heavy punishments how do you feel about the world uh, just the country at the moment um and the lockdown rules um and the lack of freedoms and rights people seem to have is, are there a lack of rights? Is this necessary? How, how, how do you I, Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think the, so the powers, yeah, I think you could argue they are quite draconian, um, but they're there for a reason and they're temporary. So when we, we had those things come to Parliament, it was very clear that they would come into place for a short while whilst people's lives were at risk. Um, you've know, got to remember, people have been dying, tens of thousands of people have been dying because of COVID, and therefore we need to do something to try and stop that from happening. Um, and these laws expire. So they'll cease to apply 
once we can see, and, and we can already see that with a vaccination program, that the risk to people's lives and to their well-being and to their health is, is diminishing. Um, in terms of how it's handled, I speak to my local police very regularly, and the feedback I've had from them is, for the most part, they deal with it just by speaking to people. You know, it's just to remind people that certain things that you may be doing, whilst you personally may not be at very much risk from COVID, you can pick it up and take it to somebody else who may die of it. So they need to be reminded perhaps that when it comes to, to exercise, doing stuff out and about, what the rules are. And fines are used as a last resort. And there have been some people who've been just clearly blatantly breaking the rules, you know, organising huge mass gatherings of various kinds, weddings and stuff like that. And given the danger that that presents to other people, I think it's right that that's dealt with robustly. Um, but I'm looking forward to the day when those powers aren't needed anymore. Same here, because historically, not many nations give up their emergency powers, whether it's Germ you know, Nazi Germany or, I don't know, Star Wars or anything like that. There's, there's this <laughs> Emperor Palpatine. There's always this reputation of, um, you know, once you have emergency powers, it's, it's really hard to give them up. Do you feel, do you feel confident that the UK will give up their emergency powers? It does expire? It, it does expire. It has expired already and has been renewed. So it, it would have ceased to apply completely um, if the government hadn't come back to Parliament and said, look, can we, we renew these? And it comes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier on, how most of the time politicians work together cross party. So all the different bits of it are all looked at in much more detail. So you, you see the things that go on in the Chamber of House of Commons, which is the vote on the whole package, but each individual element gets scrutinized. So for example, when um, the government was trying to respond to outbreaks that were happening in particular areas, and you had the authorities in those areas saying, look, you know, we need to deal with um, closing down venues that are causing uh, major outbreaks, and we need specific powers to do that because those powers do not normally exist. Then a committee looks at that and says, right, what's the justification for that? What's going to be the impact? And that then finds its way into a piece of law that has a fixed period of time. It's got something called a sunset clause, which means it comes into effect. And the sunset clause means it ceases to exist in law, let's say, six months down the line, unless Parliament votes to extend it because there's a clear justification. But there's this very strong pushback. I think most members of Parliament are very reluctant to see, reluctant to see any of these powers at all. But we recognise that the justification for them has been the death rate and the risk to people's well-being. I, I don't think there's any prospect at all of those powers remaining in place beyond when they absolutely are essential. Okay. And I'm just hypothetically then, and I'll move on from that point. If you did, for, uh, if you did suspect some, um, a little shade of tyranny, not in this scenario, but just in general, when you're dealing with anyone who's, you know, going dealing with a tyrant in politics, how would you handle that situation? Would you just walk away from, from parliament or would you fight against it? Would you address it? What would you do if you saw someone being absolutely tyrannical? Well, democracy is the best defence against tyranny because it means, and of course, democracy can be used. Uh, and you mentioned Nazi Germany as an example. Democracy can be used. It can be played um, by people who want to use it for their own ends. But the, and the combination of, of things that we have in the UK, I think the way that our system is set up, where you've got the House of Commons, you've got the House of Lords, You've got all these other different bodies. There's lots and lots of checks and balances that are built into that system. So if one part of it looks at what another part is doing and thinks, no, that's that's crossed the line, then they can block it. And I think that's really constructive because it means it's much, much harder for anybody to get their way in a way that's that's inappropriate. And when we look at some of the powers that have been granted under the, the COVID Response Act, the Coronavirus Act, all of those things are time limited. And they're all things that have to come back to Parliament. So it means 
that there are multiple opportunities if any of that seemed to be getting out of hand, seemed to have crossed that line for it to be blocked. Okay, good. <laughs> Phew. That's good. There's checks and balances in place. The, you know, the whole system is designed to stop tyranny in the first place, right? Yes. Uh, separation of powers. So completely agree with you there. Um, that, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I think we've addressed so many different things on this, on this conversation. Um, and you've given some advice. Um, what advice would you give to young people right now who are listening to this program right now? It's a tough time for young people. It's a tough time for everybody. But particularly when you have things that have been really, really important for so long, like GCSE exams, A-level exams, university, and that's all been disrupted. One of the things that we know when we look at what happens to young people whose lives have been disrupted, and we see this, for example, of children who've come into care because of life going wrong in their family, is that in time, it catches up and it settles down. And I think staying positive and recognising that whilst things may not be as you wanted them to be when you were 16 or 18. The system is designed to make sure that you are supported so that as your life develops, you get the opportunity to things to come back on track. And that's so, so important that people have got that sense that whilst it may have gone wrong now, that doesn't mean it's going to be wrong forever. Everybody is working out how can we make sure that people get the opportunities that they need and have the chance to, to live the kind of life that they want to live. Last question, where do you see yourself in five years? From now? Uh, I hope, as the, the Member of Parliament Rice at Northern and Pinner, and uh, enjoying the company of my children who will be five years older, and, uh, and still I hope loads of fun. Thank you so much, David Simmons, CBE MP uh, for Northwood, Ricelip, and Pinner, my hometown. Uh, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you for yours. Thank you so much for listening. This is the end of the show, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye bye. <laughs>